Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. The world needs to hear your message and your story, so don't deny the world of that gift within you that the universe has given you. Someone out there needs to hear your story because it will support them in feeling hope, inspired, and even transformed. Do you want to discover how I help get my clients out of their own way, show up, and confidently share their message? I would love to extend an invitation to you to join me in my free masterclass, Start Your Own Podcast from Idea to Implementation, on Wednesday, April 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find the registry link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest is Christy Sutton. She is a chiropractic doctor, an author, and a teacher. Welcome, Christy. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. Excellent. I am so happy to have you here and can't wait to jump in and start talking about all the beautiful things that you're doing and all the magic you're putting out into the world. So let's get started. As mentioned, you are all of those things. And of course, those are some pretty demanding jobs, careers. How do you prioritize and how important is prioritization and organization to you? It's huge, but it's also sometimes it kind of feels like a free for all, no matter how much I prioritize because, you know, things come up and things don't go as planned and people get sick. And so, but prioritization is key. I think I've also learned that building in time for the unexpected is also key for not getting thrown off too much when something does come up, either with work or with my daughter or myself or my husband. It's just, there's always something, but yeah, prioritization is key. And I try to organize as much as possible but then also have realistic goals for the day. <laughs> yes. Anything can happen. As we've just witnessed <laughs> before we got onto this recording, tech problems. So there's always those little things that pop up and delay us. So I think that's great that you allow for that extra time and, and include that into your daily routine. Absolutely. And so speaking of daily routines, with you being a busy woman, a serial entrepreneur wearing multiple hats. What does your morning routine look like? Mornings, eh, my goal is to get up around five in the morning. I don't always get up around five in the morning. Sometimes I'm just too tired to get out of bed. (laughs) But my goal is to try to get up at five in the morning and to get a good hour and a half of kind of I'm going to call it work, but it's basically just things that I need to do and I can be really efficient in the morning. And so that, you know, I tend to wake up, make my coffee, sit down, kind of do whatever it is I kind of feel like I really need to get done. And if I can get it done in that first hour and a half before my daughter wakes up or before I have to go to work or whatever, then it just kind of sets a really good tone for the day. What drives, motivates, and inspires you to keep going and excelling at all that you do, Christy? I think because I'm in the healthcare field and I also have, you know, this passion to kind of move things forward in the healthcare field as far as empowering people to really take control of their health and learn how to really use information correctly and wisely and not just be a victim of what I consider to be kind of a crumbling medical system. I I think because I am like living proof of the damage that it can cause, that crumbling medical system from my own personal health struggles. And then I'm also living proof of how the, you know, natural quote unquote alternative health care is I mean, for me, it's an essential part of my being able to function. And because I see so many people on a daily basis and I kind of see them and I feel like sometimes we're kind of in the trenches together, it's just that constant reminder whenever I see patients or even just live it myself or see it with my own family where I'm just constantly reminded of how important it is for people to really be empowered with health 
related knowledge because just the quality of care is so bad in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, it's quite bad and dangerous. Yeah, which we will talk about a little bit later on in the interview. You just mentioned about your health journey and struggles. I know there's quite a story behind what inspired your journey down the road of getting into chiropractic care. And can you share a little bit about that story with us? Sure. So, well, when I was 16, I was officially diagnosed with having Crohn's disease. Now, my father was a medical doctor and a pharmacist. My mother was a pharmacist. So I had a very, you know, what's allopathic, traditional medical upbringing. You know, there was no alternative health, no organic veggies, no trips to the natural grocery store. It was pretty standard of care. I also was given a lot of antibiotics simply because I had a history of having digestive problems and my father being a medical doctor it was common just to kind of be given antibiotics as, you know, you have a GI problem, here's some antibiotics. It wasn't the right treatment really because my real problem was that I was having a lot of issues with gluten that were not diagnosed and a lot of, you know, inflammation and nutritional deficiencies. And eventually when I was 16, I developed Crohn's disease, which the diagnosis came when I just completely kind of shut down one day and they thought I had appendicitis and they went in to take my appendix out and they realized that it, my appendix was okay, but they took that out anyways. Holy and, shit. Oh, it's actually quite common and they can justify it in as many ways as they want. But I think at the end of the day, it's another medical bill to code for and get yeah. paid for. Yeah. But yeah, so they took that out, and then they also took out a foot of my small intestine, which is the last foot of the small intestine. It's called the ilium, mm. or it's part of the ilium. And they took that out because it was extremely inflamed, and I had a little fistula, which is kind of like a little hole that has worked its way through the intestines because with Crohn's, it's unique because the inflammation can go through all layers of the intestinal lining. And so you can get those fistulas. So I had one, so they removed that and sewed me back up and sent me home with some handouts. And that was 1997. There were not a lot of prescriptions on the market for Crohn's at that point in time. So I was given Azacol, which is kind of like a NSAID, anti-inflammatory, which is nothing compared to the drugs they have now. And Azacol didn't do a lot for me. And so because of that, eventually, especially when I was in college, I really started to kind of decide, I don't want to live this life. There's got to be a way that's better than this. And I started playing with my diet, some successes, some failures, but it was really eventually I found a chiropractor that helped me a lot kind of figure out that I had this horrible vitamin B3 deficiency pellagra. So by the time I found him, I was about 20 and I weighed around 70 some odd pounds just from so much, yeah, from so much malabsorption. And by this point in time, my father, they were trying to do all these interventions. The therapist wants me to take antidepressants because they think that'll help my gut and the gastroenterologist says, you know, if you were under 18, we would just commit you to a hospital and force feed you. But I knew that they were missing something and I wasn't going to do what they were asking because I knew that they didn't have the answers for me. So eventually, you know, I got my diet figured out as far as what I needed to really avoid. I started taking the vitamin B3, my diarrhea, which had been chronic, which is why I weighed 70 some odd pounds. It went away the day I started the vitamin B3. And then I kind of quickly gained weight back. But, you know, Crohn's is a serious chronic disease that has to be managed. And I had to work really hard to kind of rebuild my gut. And it's kind of a day to day. I just have to manage my diet very closely. Nutritional supplements are like a lifeline for me for healing up my gut and just kind of trying to manage everything. And so not only am I managing the Crohn's, but I also have to manage the side effects of the surgery because at this point in time, a lot of the side effects that I have are from them removing the last foot of my small intestine. And, you know, and it, I think and believe that had my father and parents 
had me properly diagnosed as having celiac at a younger age, prior to having that surgery, I could have avoided being diagnosed with Crohn's and having that surgery. Right. So that was kind of my introduction into the alternative healthcare world and chiropractic. And it was a huge change in my life for sure. And so that was the inspiration for you getting into chiropractic care and becoming a chiropractor or part of it? That was a, yeah. Well, here's another kind of interesting part of the story that I didn't include. When I was looking for answers, I was told, you know, you need to go see Dr. Bandy in Austin. He's a chiropractor. Well, the person who told me that, they didn't tell me it was a chiropractor. They just said, go see this doctor. And so I made an appointment and it wasn't until I got there. Once I got there, I realized that this doctor that I was going to was a chiropractor. And I almost didn't go because I had been raised in a family where chiropractors were called quacks. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't want to be rude because I was also raised in a family where you have manners. And if you say you're going to do something, you do it. I almost didn't even go to the appointment once I saw you know, chiropractor, which I was already at the appointment. And it was just because I'd been raised that way. So, but I did go to the appointment and it changed my life because he immediately helped me. And so it's kind of, people don't traditionally think of, oh, it's a chiropractor that would lead you to help you with Crohn's. But what he really did was he helped me kind of address the underlying problems that were creating the nutritional deficiencies and really hone in on the food allergies and really kind of create like an owner's manual for myself, which, you know, the traditional medical world was completely unable to do for me. That is so wild because I, I certainly, for me, when I think of Crohn's and things like that. I certainly do not think of a chiropractor and allergies and things like I don't think of a chiropractor at all. So that is pretty fucking wild. It totally is. Yeah. And I wouldn't either until I actually came upon this doctor. And then I realized, you know, there's this whole community of chiropractors that are just extremely knowledgeable about the human body and health and in a way that's really founded in science and strong and works. It's just not being used by the traditional doctors. That is incredible. So would you recommend then people with Crohn's go see a chiropractor? Yeah, but you know, when you say chiropractor, that's really, there's a lot of different types of chiropractors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you'd have to kind of do your research and find somebody that is really well-versed and just holistic health. Right. And because they're, and there's nothing wrong with this, but there are a lot of chiropractors that, you know, they just adjust and they are only interested in a very quick visit of adjusting your spine and not particularly spending much time on talking to you or, or doing a, you know, workup or, you know, that stuff. And that's fine. There's a place in the world for that. And they're still doing a lot of good. I just think you have to find somebody that has spent more time really learning about the whole body and natural alternative health options. And so how long have you been a practicing chiropractor now? About 11 years. I know that you are also big into genetics, epigenetics. Can you share a little bit about that with us, how your journey began into that world? Yeah, sure. So Because of my experience with having pellagra, vitamin B3 deficiency, and because of my having Crohn's and, you know, just all the digestive history, nutrition is something that I have really studied very heavily. I had a microbiology biochemistry degree in college. And for me, I always like to really dig into, oh, this B vitamin is here in the Krebs cycle. I got really kind of geeky about it (laughs) in a way that, you know, most people, they were just kind of trying to memorize it for the test. But I was like, oh, this is this B vitamin doing this. And, And that kind of like helped build a foundation for then when I was in chiropractic school. And so when I was in chiropractic school, there was not as much information about genes and genetics, but there was certainly, it was starting. It just wasn't as easily accessible as it is now. Okay. And so I remember there was this one professor that he mentioned how some people, they just don't methylate B vitamins very well, and they have to take this specific 
form of B vitamins and it's just a genetic issue. And he said, and then you just take this specific methylated B vitamin and they're better. And so then that kind of stuck in the back of my mind. And then when I was in practice, it was still early out of school. There was this lady that brought her daughter in and she was like, I don't know why she decided this, but she was like, my daughter's depressed and suicidal and nothing's helping and we need your help. And I'm like, why are you, this is so much pressure. I cannot promise you anything, but I'm just going to do my best to try to support her health in any way I can. And, you know, okay. Okay. But hold, hold on a sec. Why? I'm, I'm trying to understand why someone would bring their daughter who is suffering from mental health and depression issues to a chiropractor. Well, at the time, I was working with a chiropractor who had a very well-established practice and a reputation for helping people with hard-to-treat things that other doctors had missed. Okay. And so as a doctor fresh out of school, I think that she was just kind of saying, well, you're in this practice and he's helped a lot of people with strange things. So, you know, we can't get in with him. You need to help us. Right. Okay. (laughs) And so my heart kind of jumped out of my chest (laughs) and then we ordered some labs and the labs revealed that she had a number of blood markers that made her both low in iron, but also low in some B vitamins. And so I gave her some iron and started doing a little bit better, but then we gave her the B vitamins, the methylated B vitamins, and it like changed her life. And she was just like, it changed her life. She was so much better from those methylated B vitamins. And I thought, wow, she must be one of those people with that gene. And then life went on and I ended up actually moving cities and I never saw her again. But then upon moving cities, that's when the 23andMe kind of explosion started. And I'd had patients come in, one patient in particular that was really interested in it. And this was a while ago when there was not a lot of really good information. I would say there's still not as much good information as there should be. But the information that was out there, I was not comfortable with it. Given my science background, I just felt like it was, you know, not the type of information that I wanted to really get on board with or help my patients get on board with for as far as like using the genes and genetics and nutrition and stuff. And so I really started to dig into it. And of course, the gene that this girl probably had, and I don't know for sure because I never looked at her genes, but I realized that this gene that she probably had, the MTHFR gene, could easily for less than $100 be checked through 23andMe, which kind of blew my mind. And in addition to checking for that one gene for the same task could check for a bunch of different genes that I had never heard of, but was eager to learn about as well. And so I started just kind of doing research and organizing it. And that was where my first book was born out of, but really all started with that girl having that like light bulb moment with the methylated B vitamins. And then me realizing that if we can check this gene, then I'm not guessing anymore. And then, you know, how many people can we help prevent having health problems because we catch the gene before it becomes an issue? And it really kind of took the guesswork out of some of healthcare, there's a lot of guesswork in healthcare. So whenever you can take some of it out, there's great value in that. But there's also, you know, you have to be able to interpret the data correctly, which just means you have to really understand the genes and what they mean and, you know, how to take actions correctly. This is all blowing my mind right now. Again, <laughs> when I think about chiropractic care, I think about what you described as someone who comes in, you go in, see them, they fix your back and that's it. I never in a million years dreamed or thought that chiropractors are so well versed in genetics and epigenetics and do all these other things like helping someone who is depressed. Those thoughts never even crossed my mind. So this is fucking blowing my mind because I just don't put those two together. Yeah. Well, you have to understand that, you know, the profession itself has been around for a long time 
And it's really founded in this philosophy of find the root cause of the problem, whether that's structural, chemical, or psychological, and fix the root cause of the problem to restore the health of the nervous system. Now, there have been a lot of turf wars between mostly between like medical doctors and chiropractors. And our scope has really kind of been dwindled down to be thought of and treated like in most states, you know, spine and musculoskeletal system. But if you're going to be adjusting the spine and the musculoskeletal system and you want those adjustments to hold, then sometimes you have to fix the underlying cause that's causing them to continuously go out of place. And that's not always a structural issue. That could also be a chemical issue or even a psychological like stress or something issue. And so the profession was really kind of ahead of its time, but it's just, there've been a lot of challenges. And at one point in time, the American Medical Association, their goal was to completely eradicate the profession. And so, yes, and there was actually a lawsuit and they lost, the American Medical Association lost because they created this quote unquote committee on quackery and what they, (laughs) I'm not making this up. Wow. You can look it up. They made up this committee on quackery. They wanted the chiropractors to just be gone. Because they thought they were quacks. Well, I think they thought they were quacks. I think there's also been a lot of turf war battles and it's it's a lot about this is my turf, you know, I don't want any extra competition, you know. You're infringing on my territory, so yeah. back the fuck off. Yeah, we have different philosophies about this, you know go away. And so they created this committee on quackery. The intention was to make the profession completely eradicated. The reason that they ended up getting in trouble and losing is because what this committee did was they fabricated all of this information about chiropractors. They just made it up like they were hurting people and all this stuff. And they put that information into the medical schools disseminated it throughout the public. But the reason they got in trouble is because they were so brazen as to have a note keeper at their meetings. And it was the note keeper that eventually somehow those notes landed on the doorstep of the chiropractor's lawyer. And that is how they lost that lawsuit. Having said that, and they had to pay a fine, but at the end of the day, like all that damage had been done, all this information had been put out there. And so... The chiropractic and the medical profession kind of, they don't have the best history and I would love to see that get better. I try to build relationships with medical doctors. I refer to them. They never refer to me. So it's certainly an area that I think could use some improvement, but that's just a little bit of the history of kind of why there's so many misperceptions about the profession just fucking blew my mind this is incredible (laughs) i have no idea like you do i hear i've talked to people about chiropractors and they're like no way am i going to a chiropractor they fuck up your back and so that would be i would think a result of all of that misinformation that has been put out there and the fact how long ago was that that was in the 70s holy shit and so that information is still trickling through people and being passed around to misinform people about chiropractic. That's insane. Yes. Yeah. It's nothing like it's ever really occurred. And it, you know, it's such a discriminatory practice that really they've totally gotten away with. And as a profession, we're still discriminated against more than, you know, I'd say any other licensed healthcare provider. Now, having said that, you know, it's very possible that somebody has had a bad adjustment from a chiropractor. Okay. It's also, you know, I've had bad experiences with medical doctors. I still go to medical doctors. I've had bad experience with dentists. I still go to dentists. So we can't just like throw a whole profession out because somebody had a bad experience. And I always tell people, you know, if you really want to know the risk of going to a chiropractor versus a medical doctor, look at our malpractice insurance because the malpractice insurance companies do the math and my, my malpractice insurance is dirt cheap. Medical doctors' malpractice insurance is so much higher because they do drugs and surgery. And you want to know what's really dangerous? 
drugs, drugs and surgery. And surgery. <laughs> yes. And so chiropractic is very, very safe. The number one reason that chiropractors get sued is for sexual harassment. And lar- yes, I, I've never been in sued for sexual harassment, but my understanding is that a lot of the people that do get sued for sexual harassment, you have to understand our profession, if you're going to adjust somebody, you know, your hands are going to be yes. all over them in yeah. places maybe they don't they don't normally have strangers have their hands in right. or, you know, on their bottom or whatever. But that's necessary for the adjustment. And so I, while maybe some doctors are doing, you know, saying things that make people feel inappropriate, I, I think there's a large number of doctors that the real problem is that patients, the communication is just poor and patients misinterpret like somebody adjusting them for like, oh, they were coming on to me or something like that. So the profession's very, very misunderstood and chiropractic is very safe. You know, the malpractice insurance companies do the math and we have the cheapest malpractice insurance. And, you know, the main reason that people get sued is not even for hurting somebody. It's just, you know, really a non-medical issue. That is so damaging. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Whole, you, you, seriously, you blew my fucking mind. That's (laughs) all this information. It's like, holy shit. Yes. I had no idea. You've taken the the blue pill or the red pill or whichever pill it is. (laughs) Absolutely crazy. And so how does epigenetics fit into all of this? Okay, so epigenetics is, I feel like first I should define that. Sure, yeah, please do. So epigenetics is, so if genetics is like looking at the DNA that you have, which you inherit, then epigenetics is looking at how the environment can change how that DNA is expressed. So an analogy that I use to kind of make it easier to understand is the genetics are like the the hand of cards you're dealt and then the epigenetics is like how well or poorly you play that hand of cards okay that's a great analogy thank you yeah and so you get dealt what you get dealt you can't change what genes you inherited from your parents you know if you have bad genes then you know you just didn't choose your parents very wisely right and that's just too bad you have good company join the club yeah Yeah, join the club but you can change how those genes are expressed by making good health choices. And so that could be as simple as not being sedentary and exercising can turn on good genes and turn off bad genes. You know, eating vegetables and fruits and not eating a bunch of corn syrup and low quality fats and unhealthy foods can turn on good genes and turn off bad genes. So those, you know, just a couple examples, but you can really kind of get detailed and very sophisticated with it if you start looking at specific genes and environmental factors that can influence those genes. And the ability to really influence those genes is compounded with time because the earlier you know about a gene, then the faster you can do something to prevent that gene from being a problem. So for example, let's say somebody has the Alzheimer's gene. Well, most people wouldn't even know they had the Alzheimer's gene until maybe they were diagnosed with Alzheimer's right. or memory problems. And then a doctor might decide, well, it's t- let's just see if you have this gene, which you know, still to this day is not always done, even though it's not for a lack of having the ability to do genetic testing. Genetic testing just isn't being utilized properly. Okay. And so let's say somebody has the Alzheimer's gene. Well, you could figure that out in a six-year-old Or you can figure that out in a 65-year-old that's already having memory loss. You have to understand that once you have memory loss with Alzheimer's disease, there's already permanent damage there. And you can do things to help to minimize future damage and maybe even improve some of the symptoms. But you have to understand that like the window of time for you to prevent Alzheimer's disease is already closing and now you have the foot in the door and maybe you'll make the right decisions to keep that window open longer, hopefully. But there's already damage there that, you know, you may not be able to correct. But you can minimize the coming damage, the yeah. the possibility for more damage. Yeah, you can minimize the coming damage. But you have, you know, 65 years of damage that you now have to kind of make up for. So right. 
let, let's look at that compared to like a six-year-old. You know, some people might say, why would I want to check my six-year-old for the Alzheimer's gene? Which it's a fair question and there's a good answer for it. The answer is that, well, there's a lot of good reasons, but the number one reason I would check a six-year-old for the Alzheimer's gene would be to decide what sports I'm going to allow them to get into. Because okay. if you have the Alzheimer's gene, you are more likely to have a concussion and not heal up from it properly. And then concussions will increase your risk for Alzheimer's disease later. They so, could trigger that then essentially. So exactly. So when my daughter was younger, we did genetic testing on her and I was happy to see she didn't have the Alzheimer's gene. But had she had it, I, I would not have promoted soccer as a sport for her because that is the number one risk sport for concussions for females. Wow. And, if, you know, eventually you're going to get one if you play competitively. There's just some sports where, like, you're kind of asking for it. Yeah. Hockey, football, yeah. you know, these are bad sports to put somebody with the Alzheimer's gene into. So that's one reason. Another reason, and this is just an example, that's an epigenetic decision. Deciding okay. what sports to put somebody in based on their genes, that is an environmental decision that can right. make a huge influence on whether somebody develops a disease later in life. There's other things you can do as far as diet, nutrition, lifestyle that can minimize the risk for Alzheimer's and many other genetic diseases or genetically influenced diseases. But ultimately, if you don't have that information, it's hard to create a really personalized, tailored plan. Well, yeah, most people would never even think about getting their six-year-old or seven-year-old tested for the Alzheimer's gene. That just wouldn't enter people's minds. Yeah. But would you recommend that parents do that? Yes. Wow. Are there any other things in particular that you would recommend that people get their kids tested for that you yeah. wouldn't normally think of? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so another example is the hemochromatosis gene, which so I'm writing this book, The Iron Curse, which is about my husband has hereditary hemochromatosis and my daughter inherited that gene from him. And so this is a gene that increases your ability to absorb iron. And there is this myth, and there's a lot of myths and misperceptions and misinformation out there about the hemochromatosis gene and hemochromatosis in general. And I'm trying to dispel those myths and misperceptions and misinformation in my Iron Curse workshop and that upcoming book. But it was slightly high, but it was still high, and it was trending in the wrong direction. They never contacted me to tell me it was out of range or anything. They just posted it on the portal, and that was it. And so most parents, one, they wouldn't know their kids have that gene. Two, they wouldn't know what exactly. labs to have the doctor order, you know, because now I'm telling the doctor what to do, which yeah. is not uncommon at this point in my life, but <laughs> it shouldn't, it, that shouldn't be the It shouldn't story. be, no. Yeah, because uh, the doctors should be the ones that are doing this stuff. So well, that's, that's part of the problem, right? Is that we have put so much faith and trust in our doctors because we were conditioned to believe that they are the ones who know and they should be telling us and we shouldn't have to tell them to do certain things because they're the doctors. They're the experts. Why are we telling the experts what to do? Exactly. Exactly. So, which speaks to how broke, again, which we will talk about momentarily, how broken the medical and healthcare system is. Yeah. Well, this is really a perfect example. So, my daughter did have the high ferritin. You know, I will be checking it in the coming weeks to see if it's gone down because I have been treating it myself because they didn't even think to do anything about it. And one reason I knew not to even waste my time with asking them is because. The same pediatrician's group, which is actually an excellent pediatrician group, they were not able to treat the other five-year-old that I referred to them who I diagnosed with hereditary hemochromatosis. And hereditary hemochromatosis is something that destroys your brain and causes infertility and destroys wow. your heart and causes diabetes. And it's a really dangerous issue that most medical professionals, they're not checking for the gene. They're not doing the labs to see if you have this issue and they are not diagnosing it. So there's this misperception that it's really uncommon. But in kids with the gene that causes them to have high iron, it's not 
really as uncommon as you would think. It's just not being tested for because this myth is telling people and doctors it's not that common. So the doctors don't even know how to treat it. The five-year-old that I diagnosed with hereditary hemochromatosis, she is a colleague's daughter of mine, and she actually ended up getting referred to a pediatric hematologist. And the pediatric hematologist totally dropped the ball on it too after being wow. referred there. I write about it in my book and I cover it in the workshop, but it's really one of those, I mean, you want to talk about blowing your mind? It's, <laughs> it's really mind blowing, but it's the perfect example of how the medical system, and I think it's because the doctors just in general don't have enough time to spend with people to really like do the workup that they need to do. And they're so constrained by insurance and what insurance allows them to order and do that it's like we're taking their critical thinking skills you train them and then you almost take it away like it's just well it doesn't matter what you want to do it's what insurance will pay for well this speaks to the fact i interviewed a doctor who was in the uk and she actually is a gp and she actually left the profession and has now become a lifestyle doctor because she was tired of this what the medical system healthcare system has become and she explained it as it's the fast food system of medical care she said it's gotten horrible that is such a good way of explaining it yeah she said it's the mcdonald's drive-through of healthcare she said it's absolutely ridiculous so she got tired of the system and she left and started her own thing where she does what she calls lifestyle medicine Mm -hmm. she practices lifestyle medicine because the system is so broken and there's nothing that the doctors can do to fix it no, but they're also, you know, making a lot of money in that broken system. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and the way that they make that money is by high volume, you yeah, know? sure. And what really pays, if you really want to make money in healthcare, become a surgeon. Right. <laughs> because surgery really pays well. Yeah. And, you know, the time that doctors spend with you, that is not compensated nearly as well as a medical procedure. And, you know, the other area in medicine that's making a ton of money, and the doctors are not making money off of this, but the pharmaceutical industry is making a ton of money. And the pharmaceutical industry is, I think- Billion dollar industry. Like, it's insane. Yeah. I think, you know, if we have learned anything in the last couple of years, it's how much power the pharmaceutical industry has over just everyone right now. Yeah. It's crazy. It's gotten way out of hand and people need to be held accountable. There needs to be a change. But so this leads into this whole conversation that I wanted to have with you about, you know, I know that you and I are of the same mindset when it comes to the healthcare medical system and how broken it is. We've been talking about it. And I mean, you're in the States, I'm in Canada, but I think we can both agree that the systems are are severely broken in both countries. So in your opinion, I'd love to hear, first of all, why do you think it's become so broken? Secondly, how do we, and is it even possible to find a solution for people? I mean, I guess alternative medicine is another solution, but I think the current system is irreparable. So what do people do here? Yeah, it's really a very hard question you're asking. There's no easy answer. And I think And this is one world where we really live in like a haves and a haves nots because I feel like the haves are the people who they have both their traditional medical doctor and medical insurance for if they get hurt. I know you live in Canada. It's a little bit different. But here it's like, you know, you have your Blue Cross Blue Shield for if you get hurt or anything catastrophic. And, you know, maybe you have your well check visit that's underwhelming and they don't really do much. But that's covered. And then you have the haves have these cash pay, non-insurance based doctors that are spending more time and doing more of a workup and really doing what they should be doing and finding problems and addressing them and hopefully doing that in a way that first does no harm, which is quite likely not the traditional medical pharmaceutical route, but those are the haves. And then, you know, everybody else, which is most people, they don't have that either because one don't have the knowledge to know that that's what you really need to get through this world right now, in my opinion, or two, they don't have the finances because it's not cheap. Yeah, exactly. 
So, I mean, <laughs> it's so sad how broken it's become. What do you think has caused this to be so severely broken? Is it just greed? I think, I think that we've kind of lost our path and we've let, I think, greed, big, you know, big corporate pharmaceutical companies and not just pharmaceutical companies, but, you know, the big medical industrial complex has really kind of become a self-feeding monster. And there's so much overhead with so many administrators and just all of these extra fees. It's become a bloated it's, system. It's, it's bloated system. It's a bloated system. Just like colleges have become a bloated system, yeah. you know, and they're outrageously expensive too. Yeah. And that's got to change. But, well, they, there's, that's a whole other podcast. Right, 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 right. The education system is completely broken too. There's so many broken systems out there. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so I, I think some of it is greed. I think some of it is, you know, they kind of let the fox guard the hen house, for yeah. lack of a better word. Yeah. In my mind, like the fact that pharmaceutical companies can't get sued for certain medications is a really big red flag. If people don't have checks and balances, then, you know, that is, although I'm not a big proponent of suing people or companies, I think that's an important checks and balance system that, you know, no other industry is excluded from. Well, you look at some of the pharmaceutical companies, I mean, that you can find online the amount of fines some of these companies have had to pay, but the money that they make it far outweighs the fines. So they don't give a shit. It's like, oh, well, we'll drop. 70 million to pay that fine because we mm -hmm. know that that money is going to come back in spades no problem it'll be made up in what we make from selling the drugs that we are creating so it doesn't yeah. matter or you know they just have you know legislation like the patriots act which was passed of course after 9 11 yeah the patriots act basically made it so that you couldn't sue vaccine manufacturers for vaccine injuries and that to this day holds true. So <laughs> that's an example of, and I'm not, you know, I'm not just picking, that's just an example of yeah. how there's some serious problems in the system that don't make sense if you truly, you know, want a sound healthcare system that protects the public. So I guess people need to find what works for them, what they can afford and go that route, whether that be alternative methods of medicine or, you know, I mean, it, it's horrible because this is people's lives that they're playing with here. And yeah. they need solutions. People need help. And they if they can't afford it, it's fucking horrible that you can't get the care that you need because of finances. That is true. And there is a lot of that. Having said that, you know, I think we also need to, as a human being in a population of increasingly sick human beings have a little bit more ownership over the day-to-day -day health decisions that we make because there's a lot of people that have very avoidable health problems that could be avoided and corrected with simple it's not for the lack of knowledge they know they need to stop drinking sodas and eating yeah. fast food they're just not doing it and i'm not, and as a working mom that, you know, struggles to get healthy meals on the table and sometimes it's not as good as I'd like, but I'm still doing the best I can. Yeah. I get it. It's a challenge. Yeah. I'm not saying it's easy, but we do live in a society where it's getting increasingly hard and I don't want to put all of it on the public because, you know, the reality is that healthy food is becoming harder to come by, more expensive, but even like, you know, is organic really organic? Is my four <laughs> times more expensive broccoli actually pesticide free? Exactly. You know? there, there's And there's no way of knowing that, is there? How do we find that out? I mean, there, there's just so there's many no factors here and it's like, mm -hmm. what the fuck do we do? I mean, I think everybody needs to really build a community of people that are health-minded. It is so hard to be health-minded in this world. And it's easier if you have a community of people that are supportive. We have to build a community of friends and relatives and healthcare providers and just really start at the dinner table. You know, I, I love, love, love that you brought that up. The whole thing about community, because we have gotten so far away from community. Like, 
I think about when I was a kid and community was huge. For example, my mom used to babysit kids in the neighborhood and parents dropped their kids off and parents trusted other people. And now you look around you and everyone's so guarded and understandably there are reasons behind that but people don't even know who the fuck their neighbors are they don't talk to Mm -hmm. them and we've become so siloed that we need to get back to community there is so much value and importance in community we need that again we cannot and are not meant to do this thing called life alone entrepreneurship all of these things they all tie into community you can have so much more success and thrive through community. And we need to get back to that. Think about even depending, of course, upon where you live, climate and all of these things, but you could start a garden. I've seen them all even in Canada, in different parts of Canada, where there's community gardens and you're growing vegetables and you're you're trading and helping each other. And like things like that would help all go towards shifting the way of thinking and shifting how we live, Mm -hmm. all of these things. But it all comes down to community. Mm-hmm. It also kind of makes you feel like, oh, it's not just me. There's actually a bigger problem out there yeah. that we need to address. Whereas I feel like a lot of times people feel like, oh, it's just there's something wrong with me. I can't make this work. I'm one person. I can't make mm-hmm. a difference. And but you can. And I've you know, I've learned that over the past few years as an entrepreneur that yes, one person can make a difference because what you do and the people you surround yourself with spills into that and it's just the ripple effect and then it just keeps going and going and going. So we need to get out of that mindset and shift that mindset around I'm one person, I can't make a difference. Yes, you can. It start it all starts with you. Everything mm-hmm. starts with us. And once we surround ourselves with those people and build those communities, things will start to change. And we educate each other through our conversations. And that's another piece of it is having these conversations like you and I are having right now. A lot of people don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And we need to have these conversations. These things need to be talked about. We need to start having those difficult conversations because that's how things start to change. Conversation is the catalyst for change. If you're not talking about it, people don't know about it. Then in turn, you can't do anything to change it. Right. And, you know, a lot of what the typical media is kind of putting out there is not really making us ask the questions that we really need to be asking. Exactly. So we kind of have to go to alternative options, which is why I think podcasts are such a awesome thing and more vital now than ever before. Absolutely. Because there's no censoring and at least not right now anyway. It's a great way to get the, this information out there. That's part of why I love podcasting because you have access to so many people and you can have these conversations and share this information and then other people can pick up on it. And Oh my God, Christy, I'm so fucking fired up. I love, <laughs> awesome. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so speaking of being fired up and lit up, what lights you up or inspires you about the work that you do, Christy? I mean, when somebody comes in and, you know, you've been working with them and they're just doing so much better, that just feels like such a win. And that definitely kind of keeps my fire burning. There's days where it's like, I just need a win. Like, just please give me a win. (laughs) And that sometimes I kind of just reflect on it. I'm like, okay, all right. I got to win. We, we did yeah. that. That's probably, you know, and then just on a personal level, I think just my daughter and my husband are real driving factors for everything that I do and trying yeah. to help them. So on the flip side of that, then what would you say is one of the most challenging parts of the work you do? I think that at this point I'm wearing a lot of hats and that's part of just where I am in the progress that I've been making, but it's hard to wear so many hats, meaning I'm a clinician, but I do have some help in the office, but it's still, there's a lot of oversight on that and checking to make sure mistakes are not being made and just running the business part of it. And then simultaneously trying to finish up this book and launch the lab genomics and, you know, do all this 
marketing and everything. It's not that I don't have any help. It's that it's just, there's a lot of different hats I'm wearing and I don't have enough really solid people to kind of fill in partly because you have to, at some point in time, let the reins go, but also make sure you have good people to kind of pick up from there. So that's the hardest part. And then just always feeling like, and I'm not as bad about this now, but especially as a new mom, always feeling like when I'm spending time at work, I should be spending time with my family and then vice versa. So kind of always feeling like, oh, I'm not doing the right thing. And that's an, I'm not as bad about that now, but part of that is just like my daughter's grown up and now she's, you know, in school from yeah. 8 to 3.15. So that helps. But yeah. Yeah. What is one common myth about your profession that you'd like to debunk? I mean, I think we kind of <laughs> dove into that a little bit before. <laughs> we're, we're not thought of very highly by a large segment of the community. And I think it's to the detriment of the people that are not willing to go to a chiropractor because there's a lot of brilliant, wonderful chiropractors out there. And you just need to find one that works well for you. But chiropractors have a very strong philosophy of, you know, first do no harm, find the root cause of the problem and really remove that problem and support the body so that the body can heal itself. I want to speak a little bit about your journey into the author world. You mentioned it a couple of times. You're writing your second book, I believe. So mm-hmm. can you share with us what the books are about, the titles? Yeah, I'd love to. So the first book is Genetic Testing, Defining Your Path to a Personalized Health Plan. And that is really, it goes along with the genetic detoxification report that you can create using 23andMe raw data. But that book goes through piece by piece, gene by gene. What does each gene mean? I have lots of different genes in there, including the ones we've talked about so far and many, many more, but what do they mean? What should you talk to your doctor about? What are some health problems associated with them? What are some labs you should do? What are some nutritional lifestyle epigenetic things you can do to decrease your risk for health problems? I wrote that probably in 2017 and it was as much of a formative experience of learning about the genes as it was really the end product being the goal. You know, the the process of writing a book is very transformational. And I learned a lot through writing that book. Ultimately, on my list of things to do is to go back and update it. But there's still some really good key information in there. And that was formative and foundational because it actually led into my second book, which is The Iron Curse. Because when I wrote that first book, I discovered the hemochromatosis gene, and I really discovered that was what was driving my husband's high iron that wasn't being diagnosed and treated correctly. And so from that experience and helping my husband get properly diagnosed and treated with hemochromatosis, I became a much better clinician at diagnosing that in my patients. And because I was looking at genes and the labs, I got really sophisticated about diagnosing this in a way that I unfortunately discovered most doctors are not doing, you know, because they're either not looking at the genes at all, or they don't understand them like they should, or they're not running the proper lab tests and interpreting them and acting appropriately. So because of that, I have now written The Iron Curse, which is about hemochromatosis, iron overload, but also various anemias. It's really, you know, all about iron. And that's been very transformational as well. Just if you think you know anything about a topic, go write a book about it and you'll learn (laughs) that you don't know as much as you thought you knew. Thank you very much for sharing that, Christy. (laughs) What do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful? I think that I have a pretty good mind for critical thinking and kind of asking the right questions and zeroing in on kind of the primary problem and kind of doing a good workup. I really try to be like a good diagnostician. That's really an important thing to me to be able to properly diagnose something. Yeah. 
Now, speaking of success, how do you define that word? What does the word success mean to you? Oh, gosh, that should be an easy question, but (laughs) for me, it's not. (laughs) I feel like success is something that if we're not careful, it becomes a moving target. And at some point in time, I think we have to kind of just look back and realize how far we've come from where we were. And maybe we're not where we want to be, but sometimes you kind of have to define success by looking in the rear view mirror rather than kind of exactly where you are at the moment. And so I try to maybe around New Year's write my New Year's resolutions and then I'll write them on a new piece of paper, but then I'll get my old ones, which I fold together and put behind a family picture frame. And I put them all together and then the next year I go back and I look at them and I rewrite them. And that really helps me because it's been a whole year and I can go back and I can look, you know, at not just the last year, but like many years past. And I realized that there's some pretty big things on those lists that I have accomplished. And granted, you know, I feel like those lists are never done. And that's just part of being human is, you know, having goals and, you know, things to strive for. But it kind of does give me some peace and sense of accomplishment and success when I'm able to go back and look in the past at what I was aiming to do that I've now accomplished. Well, I think it's also a great thing to do to look back. And for me, I mean, competition mindset, we all have gone through and dealt with that. And I've come to learn and believe and put into practice that my only competition is me. So I love looking back at at me as a photographer. I love looking back at my previous work and then looking at my current work to see how far I've come. Mm -hmm. So I think it also serves as a great marker to see, like you said, look at what I've accomplished, look how far I've come. And it's a great marker to see where you are now and to have that comparison for yourself, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have to have a marker. Yeah. What would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before learning it? And what was your life like after you learned it? I think when, after meeting Dr. Bandy, who helped me diagnose the pellagra, that was a real aha moment because it was such an obvious change in my health with something very simple and natural. And it was formative. It was really important because it made me realize that it wasn't just me. It wasn't just that I was broken because before that moment, I kind of had this vision of, oh, there's just something wrong with my intestines and they're just broken and they're just, they're not good. And then after that, it was like, it's not my intestines, it's my environment. And that's really the key. And I think that's kind of what has made me focus so heavily on the environmental factors and not just the environmental factors, but really the natural environmental factors that we can control for and that our body needs and is often lacking. What is an unexpected blessing or recurrence in your life that you're grateful for? Maybe one of two things. One is So my mother, who's since passed away, she was a paranoid schizophrenic, which was a really hard thing. But being in that environment, which growing up, and that probably also contributed to some of my health problems, just the stress of my family situation. But it certainly made me become stronger you know, just because I kind of had to. There were challenging situations and my parents were not going to, they they couldn't baby me if they wanted to, you know, yeah. there, there, that wasn't an option. I kind of had to just put on my boots and figure it out for yeah. better or worse. And it wasn't always good because sometimes when you're a teenager and your frontal lobe is not all there, but your hormones are raging, you make bad decisions. Yeah. But that, I think that there's a, kind of a silver lining maybe to some of that, although it's kind of, you know, a dark situation. And then maybe also my Crohn's because I was going down a bad path really kind of with my life at the time and just not really hanging out with good people and making bad choices. And, you know, that probably contributed to some of my getting sick as well. And I couldn't keep going down that path 
in the same capacity after that diagnosis. So finding the silver lining in these things, which is incredible. And it takes a huge mindset shift to get into that headspace and to look at things that way, to look at things, these are happening for me and not to me. Yeah. What does the word empowerment mean to you, Christy? Empowerment to me means just I'm going to dig deep and I'm going to use all of my capacity to believe in myself and whatever goal I make, I'm going to find a way to get there. I know you're not supposed to use the word in a definition, but I am empowered (laughs) to make something happen because it's something that's within me that I'm going to make happen rather than it just happen to me or for me. It's changing your situation regardless of what situation it might be, how bad it might be. Who in your life has had the biggest impact on you and why? That's really a hard question for me because I feel like I've had so many influential people, but I've already mentioned, of course, Dr. Bandy, and he's been a huge influence on my life. My husband, certainly, because one, you know, just your spouse has a huge influence on your life just because they're your kind of support system. But also just him having the health problems, the hereditary hemochromatosis, and then the Cushing's disease, which I think came from the hereditary hemochromatosis, and me kind of walking him through the diagnosis of all that, it really influenced me as a doctor and kind of empowered me to feel like and realize how much, one, I know, but two, medically speaking, but two, how lost the medical system really is. And I think it's one of those things where the more you know about something, the more you realize other people that should know about something really don't. Yeah. You want to shout it from the rooftops. I don't know a lot about the law. So, you know, a lawyer could sit here and tell me all sorts of things and I probably wouldn't know if they're right or wrong. But if I did know a lot about the law, then I could see through, you know, their BS. Yeah, for sure. Okay, we're going to jump into a little rapid fire section here. So the next grouping of questions just be one, two, three word answer type thing, okay? Okay. How would you describe yourself in one word? Driven. What is your personal model? Make it a great day. If you could teach the world one thing, what would it be? You can change your health. What's one thing you want but cannot buy with money? Time. What is your favorite self-care practice? Having a day off to take care of myself. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? Being a really good mother. And that concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. What is something surprising you've learned about yourself in the last year? So this last year, I had to take a totally different perspective on marketing. I know this is kind of taking a tangent, but prior to that, I was not doing much as far as marketing on social media or whatnot. And I knew that there was value in it, but I also just didn't really make time or energy for it. And then once I was ready to take my upcoming book, The Iron Curse, to try to get it published in a publishing house, I learned something that was kind of surprising to me at the time, but now in hindsight, not surprising. And what I learned is that if you want to go to a publishing house, you have to have a literary agent. And if you want a literary agent, you really need to have a very strong marketing campaign, which includes a social media following and a large email list. And I guess that I had to have a little come to Jesus meeting with myself about this is now a part of my job, not something that's optional. If I want to make a difference in the healthcare world and really get my ideas out there, then I have to do this. And so I learned that I need to, one, take this very seriously as far as the marketing piece, but it also made me kind of confront some things that I was kind of self-conscious about and just kind of hide myself and not put myself out there. And so I've learned that I can do those things and it is work. It's not as hard as I had thought it was going to be, but also I've come to really realize how important and necessary it is to take that part of your job seriously and build that following because it's so powerful. 
Big lessons. Wow. Yeah. What is one thing you love about yourself that is not related to your physical appearance? I think I have a fairly good brain and I'm grateful for that, especially considering, you know, growing up with a mother who was sick. I'm really grateful to have a fairly good brain and want to keep it that way. How do you celebrate your wins, Christy? Sometimes we'll just go blow the budget on an expensive sushi meal. (laughs) (laughs) What aspect of your personality do you think has been most helpful in your career? I think that because of what I've lived through with my own personal health challenges, it's really given me a foundation to know the truth about what does and doesn't work in healthcare and to have a real sense of confidence when I'm talking to other people because it's not like just something I have learned in a book. I've lived it. I've seen it. I really know it. There's nobody that's going to be able to talk me into thinking another way because it's something that I feel in every cell of my body and I know to be true. It doesn't matter what you know a scientific paper says or a doctor says. I, I know it because I've lived it. If you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one-hour conversation with one woman, any woman in the world, who would it be and why? Oh, gosh. That is such a good question. There are not enough really powerful women, I think, in the world right now. I would love to sit down with any president's wife because I think if you can get the ear of a president's wife, then you can get the ear of the president. And, you know, I I hate that I'm saying this because the female is not the president, but in the past, the president's wives have often played a big role in healthcare, whether it's, you know, the food or exercise or whatever. That's kind of something that is a not a super controversial topic that they kind of sometimes dig into. And I would love to get the air of a president's wife and really start laying the groundwork for changing big things in healthcare and in the system. If you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that advice be? Stay away from gluten and cow milk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Lastly, Christy, if you were to deliver your last 30-second speech to the world, like your corner of the world, your tribe, your people, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What words of wisdom would you impart? You are in control of your health. Don't be a victim of losing the genetic lottery. You are completely in control of your health. Thank you so much, Christy. I have absolutely loved this conversation. It has been so inspirational and incredible and very, very fucking educational. (laughs) I've learned a lot. So thank you for sharing a bit about your story and your journey and the beautiful work that you're doing in the world and that light you shine out into the world through your work. I appreciate you. I'm honored to have you as a member of the Empowerography community. So thank you for making and taking the time to be here with me today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Christy Sutton. She is a chiropractic doctor, an author, and a teacher. Thank you so much, Christy. I hope you have an amazing rest of the day. Thank you. You too. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca, follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast, and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.